Well, good morning, everyone. Um, Jim, by way of trying to calm my nerves, came in this morning to remind me that all of my rhetoric students would be here today. So. <laughs> well, as I look out um, at all of you here, I wonder if you realize how fortunate you are. Uh, as I look at you, and I remember where I was at your age, um, not nearly as far along the road to spiritual maturity as I think many of you are that are here today. And I think about the advantages that you have. I'm not talking about the cell phones and the iPads and the pods and the lattes and that you each, most of you have your own cars, all of those things that you probably take for granted. I know that you weren't all raised in Christian homes, but I know that many of you were. And um, if you weren't, perhaps you were involved in a vibrant church or youth groups or Bible studies. You've had disciplers, you have uh, professors here who are always ready to admonish you or to direct you or to advise you or comfort you, answer your questions, uh, whatever it is that you need. And they're here guiding you not just in how to make a living, but in how to make a life, a Christian life. And I didn't have any of that growing up. Many young people my age wouldn't have. Uh, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. And even after Christ rescued me, I think of many of the stupid choices that I made, uh, things that I, would have, that I would not have done if someone had just come alongside and, and um, pointed out some biblical truth to me or explained what a relationship with Jesus really should look like uh, or to help me really to apply the word uh, to the things that were going on in my life. I would have listened most of the time. <laughs> but when I grew up, faith was a list of do's and don'ts. Christians uh, go to church, they sing in the choir, they go to vacation Bible school, they visit the nursing home, they don't swear. My dad swore, so that was, that was familiar in our home. Um, they don't dance, Christians don't dance, and they don't go to movies, but Christians could bowl. So whenever there were a few Christian kids together, we went bowling because Christians could bowl. But I feel like no one ever told me the whole truth about life. You know, what, what does an intentional relationship with a guy look like, for example? You know, dating was just forbidden uh, when I was in high school. Or the realities of, of really adjusting to being married or to having children. Um, everything was a bit sanitized. Everything was kind of Pollyanna. It was all going to be happily ever after. So we just sort of muddled through and reality was often harsh uh, because we weren't prepared. And yet I look around at our culture and young people with so many advantages that you do have, these things I've mentioned, um, that we do really still have an entitlement culture. Uh, it's really developed here among young people. If I want something, somebody should provide it for me. Somebody should remove all the bumps in the road uh, of life. And I see that view even among some Christian young people, that you have kind of a fuzzy a uh, warm view of what faith is, that Christianity is just a formula for happiness. Um, as I thought about this, I've given my testimony before here, and I didn't want to repeat things. And you would think as, in a life as long as mine, there would be all kinds of things to choose from to show God's faithfulness. But as I prayed about it, I was led back. <laughs> I didn't hear that. That's probably just as well. I'm led back to just trying to be honest with you that Christianity isn't a magic fix, that Jesus isn't here just to meet our felt needs, that sometimes life is just hard, and that's okay, because in spite of that, God's ways are perfect. We have a promise in John 16, 33. In this world, you will have trouble. Now, I know that some of you know probably firsthand about this. Some of you, it may be financial. 
difficulties. It might be illness of someone you love. There might be a divorce somewhere uh, in your family. Maybe it's physical pain. Maybe it's the betrayal of a friend. And some of you may not experience much of this yet, but adversity will enter your lives. But adversity is not necessarily your adversary. Rather, it may be the very means that God often uses to mold and shape us into his son's image. It's the best means that he used in my life. So when these trials come, why are we so often discouraged or surprised or we get angry with God? Do we forget his faithfulness? Do we forget his sovereignty, his great love for us? Or do we forget the rest of that verse that says, But courage, the victory is mine. I have conquered the world. Do we forget that we've been promised a battle? Uh, Words like conquer and victory are military terms. If a battle isn't raging in a Christian's life, perhaps we should do an examination, as has been said, of why not instead of why me. C.S. Lewis has said the real problem is not why some pious, humble, believing people suffer, but some do not. We're all sinners. We don't deserve. We are not entitled. It's only because of Christ's great gift to us that we aren't continually suffering and broken and lost in our sin. There is an antithesis in life, in every aspect of life for the Christian. There's the way the world thinks, the way the world believes, and there's God's way, and therein lies the battle. If we don't struggle, perhaps it's because we've succumbed to the charms of the culture, or perhaps God just hasn't yet allowed adversity into our lives for his reasons. Brokenness, adversity, those things are all countercultural. We don't like pain. Most of the commercials on TV are for some kind of drugs to alleviate some sort of pain or some sort of stress. We don't want to be uncomfortable. We're told that we should look out for number one, that we're worth whatever product is being sold, and that we deserve a break today. But scripture says we will have trouble as we navigate a fallen world. As I prayed about this testimony of the many ways that I could share how God has been faithful, what seems to be most significant in my life is how he used three different kinds of pain for three different specific purposes while providing his grace and mercy to walk through them. As I said, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, but I had uh, good, hardworking, honest, the salt-of-the-earth type parents. Uh, They had lived through the Depression. They were really more the age of grandparents. Most of my grandparents were my parents' age. I was the youngest of three. My sister was 12, and my brother was 7 when I was born. And my brother was my best friend, and he was my hero. Uh, Where we went to school, uh, grades 1 through 8 were in the same building. And so when I was in the first grade, he was in the eighth. And I had these older boys that were harassing me out on the playground. Uh, You know, they were second graders. Some of them were third graders. And my eighth grade brother needed to know about this, so I told him about it. And one day they had surrounded me again on the playground, and my brother walked up in this quiet, masterful way that he had, and he said to them, you know, she's my little sister. And they just melted away, and they were gone, never to bother me again. Well, we had a tradition in our family on July 4th. We always went for a picnic in the mountains, hiked to a lake, had a picnic. And so the summer that I was nine and my brother was 16, uh, I hopped out of bed that day in anticipation of the day and found that my brother was too sick uh, to go. And on the 27th of July, we were attending his funeral. He died um, from a botched surgery. You know, humanly speaking, it was a needless death. But I remember my world was shattered. I was alone. I was scared. I was frozen as though life had stopped. And this was my first encounter with real pain. Because my best friend was gone. 
but God. How many places in scripture do we read these words after some difficulty, some struggle in life, some heartache being poured out, and then there are those words, especially in the Psalms, but God. Because God had a plan. And four years earlier, when I was five years old, a faithful pastor's wife had committed to picking me up and taking me to first vacation Bible school and then to Sunday school. And even though my parents weren't church, they allowed this. And for years, this dear lady picked me up every Sunday. A few weeks after my brother's death, it was time for vacation Bible school again. And the leaders took me aside and began to tell me about Jesus. But all I heard of all that was said that day was that Jesus is a friend who will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus meets us right where we are. He knows our failures, he knows our struggles, and he knows our pain, and he knows how to reach us. Because my deepest need right then, humanly speaking, was for a friend. I needed a friend. Well, he became my savior that day, but it was a long, slow, and somewhat painful process to learn what it meant to be in a relationship with him and to fully trust him. Because my faith was compartmentalized, I lived kind of two lives. The real life was the one with my unsaved family and going to school and all of just the difficulties and trials of life. And then there was another life on Sunday and on Wednesday nights where we learned about things of God. All of these things seemed right. They seemed good. Uh, but then you would go home to school uh, and to uh, reality. So the idea of asking the Lord for direction or asking him for guidance on a decision was really not part of my thinking Remembering now, I was nine, and I was told to read the Bible, and the Bible is a book, so you begin at the beginning of a book, right? So I began at the beginning, but I lost momentum somewhere in Leviticus, and (laughs) that was just kind of the pattern of this do's and don'ts, this compartmentalizing kind of took me through high school. For me, Christianity was not a relationship. There was no discipleship, no mentoring in my life. It was doing good things. You sang in the choir, you got good grades, you didn't drink, you didn't party. And I was pretty good at doing the right thing. My parents were very strict, and stepping on a line was never worth the consequences that I knew were sure to fall. In college, I met a Christian young man and became engaged to him, and again, God intervened, this time through an unsaved friend who made it clear to me that this was the wrong relationship for me. And through a series of events, I broke that engagement. And I knew I had done the right thing, but the Christian friends that we had and the Christian ministry that I was involved in didn't see it that way. So instead of coming alongside, I became the bad guy. Well, since my faith was based on doing the right thing, and I felt I had been doing the right thing all my life, and yet I was having lousy results, I walked away from everything spiritual for a time. I became very bitter. I became very cynical. I decided that Christians were all hypocrites. I stopped going to church, and I saw partying as the height of rebellion, and so I even tried that for a time. I had Murphy's Law up on my door. You know, if anything can go wrong, it will. I had a door-sized poster, and there are all kinds of variations of Murphy's Law, and I embraced them all. You know, like anything that can go wrong already has, you just haven't been notified. If everything seems to be going well, you've obviously overlooked something. Smile, tomorrow will be worse. If at first you don't succeed, destroy all evidence that you ever tried. This one was very real to me. And then, of course, my particular favorite, the light at the end of the tunnel, is a train. But he promises he will never leave us or forsake us, and he doesn't in spite of us, in spite of ourselves. He will complete the work that he has begun. 
Well, over the years, through a series of events, including marriage, having three children in three years, my dad's losing battle with cancer, just all the struggles of life, but mostly finally being in a sustained, consistent personal Bible study, spiritual growth began to happen in my life by leaps and bounds. He, he became personal to me. I consulted him instead of muddling through on my own. My faith was more about being in a relationship with him and wanting to submit to his leadership than doing But this striving was still part of my DNA. So part of what he was going to use now to get my attention was another kind of pain, and this one was physical. When my third child was a week old, I bent over to put him in bed, and I suffered pain at that point. The only way I can describe it, it sounded like someone had swung an axe and hit me in the back. It was excruciating, kind of passing out sort of pain. Uh, I went through a period of diagnosis, misdiagnosis, finally determined that it was degenerative discs. They become inflamed, bulging out between the vertebrae. Um, They pinch a nerve. Well, God began and had been for some time speaking to me through his word regarding this. And at this time, it was in 2 Corinthians 12, beginning with verse 8, this sharp physical pain that Paul speaks of. And he says, three times I begged the Lord to rid me of it. But his answer was, my grace is sufficient. Power comes to its full strength in weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I finally understood what those words meant because there were going to be weeks and there were going to be months of being in bed over the years. And I realized I could do nothing, but I had strength through his power through me. The scripture became so precious to me, and there was one time when I had been in bed for a time, and uh, I'm sure you've all had a cramp in your foot or a cramp in your leg. I went through a 24-hour period of full-body cramp. It was like from head to toe, full-body spasm. I couldn't even breathe. It had to be really shallow or it would just go again, and it was so painful. And I remember laying there that night in the darkness, and you could hear the cars going by and life and people, and the world was going on without me. And I had this sense of being just like an old rag doll that some child had finished playing with and had just tossed in the corner. And on the heels of that thought, it was as though I saw words on the screen, and those words were, your righteousness is as filthy rags. I finally was getting it, my doing, my striving, my pride. All those things need to be humbled. I needed to realize that this is all about him. When we're at the end of ourselves, when we, he can have our full attention, then he can really begin to teach us and use us. His grace is sufficient, and our self-sufficiency is an obstacle to our spiritual growth. And he was removing mine. I had the privilege with another woman of starting the Bible Study Fellowship class in Bozeman. And during that time began my lessons in obedience, which he would teach me through this physical pain that I had. Obedience, whether we understand what he's doing or not. My position was to be was the substitute teaching leader, which meant that uh, one of the roles was if the teaching leader couldn't give the lecture, I would. Well, the day came when she was sick, and I was unable to get out of bed to do what I'd been called to do, and it made no sense to me. It was like, God, you you called me to do this. I'm I'm sure of this, and yet here I am. Well, as I lay there, I picked up a notebook that had a list of all the women's names in it, and there were several hundred women in the class then. And as I looked at the first name on the first list, I remembered a need in that woman's life. And before I knew it, two and a half hours had passed, and I had prayed for every woman in that class. And that became a privileged time in my life of spending time with him where I couldn't do anything else. Nobody expected anything of me. I couldn't drive a car. I couldn't even make my kids a peanut butter sandwich. And I can't hardly express to you the power of this intimate time with him, of weeks and weeks of being able to pray all day if I wanted to or be in the Word all day, the beauty, the growth, the joy of having that sort of time with him.
And when the Air Advisor came uh, after I was back on my feet, she said, well, you know, this is a new Bible Study Fellowship class. And what a new class needs most is prayer. God knows. We just obey, and he does the rest. The value I had wasn't in being up front. It wasn't what I could do. It was in obedience to him and growing in understanding of him and also in understanding the power of prayer. Those precious verses in 2 Corinthians, I shall therefore prefer to find my joy and pride in the very things that are my weakness, and then the power of Christ will come and rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He was teaching me about obedience, not to be fearful of what I might be called to do, because it would not be me doing it. Uh, It would be his power and his strength. And he was also revealing his great love, not just for me, but for my family. When mom's in that shape, everybody struggles in a family. And this time I'm thinking of my children were all in elementary school. And we had people from the church bringing meals to us, which was a lifesaver. But most people would bring a casserole or salad, which is, you know, wonderful. But people weren't bringing desserts. Well, my kids were all little. They all took sack lunches, and I always had homemade cookies for their lunches. Well, this one day, my husband said to me, these are the last cookies. We're out of cookies. Well, I didn't pray for cookies that day. What I thought about was, well, here's one more thing that I can't do for my family. Well, later that day, the doorbell rings, and the woman that was standing on my doorstep was my worst nemesis in high school. (laughs) This was very much from the Lord, because this was the last person I would have ever expected to show up. But she had come to Christ, and she stood on my doorstep with two plates of cookies. And for six weeks, the six weeks that I was in bed, there were cookies coming to our house. We'd, we'd use the last ones off the plate, and more cookies would come the next day. Now, cookies matter when you're a little kid in elementary school. <laughs> this was huge for my kids, for them to be able to see that he provides, not just for our needs, but just to bless us. And I'm thinking, this is the God of the universe, and he cared that my kids had cookies. Amazing to me. So it was easy to obey that call to BSF, but it was much harder seven years later when I was called out because I loved that ministry. Many women coming to Christ there that were unchurched otherwise, except for coming to Bible study. And I really thought it was my lifetime ministry. But it became clear that it was not, and God was asking me to run for the school board, of all things. And I'm thinking, how does this possibly compare to BSF? There were a lot of tears because I really didn't want to leave that ministry. And at the time this was presented to me, I'd been in bed for three months. And I didn't even have the strength to go around and get the petitions or signatures on a petition to even run for the school board. So I had prayed about it for a long time, and I thought, I just physically can't do this, so the answer is going to be no. Well, I went to Bible study fellowship that morning, and a friend at class said, have you made a decision? And I said, yes. And she said, do you have peace about it? And immediately I said, no, because I knew I didn't. Well, in leaders, we did homiletics, and at that time, we were studying the life of Moses, and we were right to the part where the children of Israel were moving out with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, and the first question that day was, what is God asking you to step out and do for him? And I was so convicted in that moment. I literally could hardly stay in my seat. I knew that this was what I had to do. I needed to obey. Well, I had a fear of politics even at this level, and especially of this public forum where all the candidates show up and everybody in town can come and they can ask you anything they want. And I just knew that they'd ask me questions and I wouldn't know the answer or I'd compromise my faith. And we'd been speaking in other places and there were those who were going to prove that I had an agenda, that I was trying to get creation back in school or something. They were going to ask me questions and trip me up. So the night before, real fear starts to settle in. 
And this friend called me that I prayed with regularly, and she, I told her how I was finished. She said, you need to read Jeremiah 1, starting in verse 6. And I opened the Bible, and it was just as if those words had only been written for me for that very moment. They say, Ah, Lord God, I answered, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a child. But the Lord said, Do not call yourself a child. You shall go to whatever people I send you, and you shall say whatever I tell you to say. Fear none of them, for I am with you and will keep you safe. Whatever I command you, you shall speak, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Our God is so amazing, the peace that he gave me in that moment. Well, the next night comes, the first question comes, and I'm thinking I knew it. I don't have a clue what the answer to this question is. There were five candidates. I was the last. I kept waiting for an answer to come, and finally I had to stand up, and I walked up there, and words came out. And I I can't tell you to this day what I said. But the people that were there with these questions that were going to trip me up, they had them written on a legal pad, and they were sitting right in front of my husband, so he saw them. But they never asked them. They never stood up. And I could just feel God in control of the whole evening. There was a calm and a confidence to the point that near the end, when I was up there the last time, a gentleman stood up in the back and said, you have gotten off far too easily. God was just in control that night. He keeps his promises. He delivered me. Well, I didn't win, and I didn't know what was ahead because my position at BSF had been filled. But I soon saw that he had just used that whole school board thing to just move me to the next thing. And that was to establish Petra Academy. That was a call on my life. That was the most difficult thing I've ever done. But I never, ever doubted, no matter how hard, because I had to go back to the call. And I knew that that was what he wanted me to do. I also knew that it would be easier to move to a school, to a town, uh, with a classical Christian school than it would be to start one. That I was right about. But I also knew what he was asking. And I was learning obedience. And it wasn't just about my kids. It was what, clearly what he was directing our family to do. Well, early on, people doubted, students complained, and people said to me, if it's God's will, it shouldn't be so hard. And I said, well, where is that written? The verse he gave me was Haggai 2.4, which says, begin the work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. So whenever I felt fatigue or adversity or opposition, I'd go back to the call. And there was peace, there was comfort, there was conviction that his purposes would be accomplished. And I think about you students here, and many of you have said these sort of things to me, that you're wondering about being here. Maybe it's financial difficulties. Maybe it's just too hard. And I just always think about what really is the direction that he has. You go back to his call. If he directed you here, if it was real, if you were convinced, if you still are, then move forward, knowing that there's going to be opposition and knowing that the enemy does not want you here. We sing that song a couple of weeks ago, Use My Ransom Life in Any Way You Choose. Do we really mean that? Do we realize it's all about him and not about us? When, we, when he calls, we obey. Because ministry is hard. Everybody's a critic at times. The accolades can be few. Sometimes we can become weary. We don't really see the fruit. We don't really know what he's doing in lives. But sometimes when we're struggling the most and we just feel like we can hardly go on another day, he reveals his love and care in such intimate ways that it is literally as though he just came down and spoke to us. One of those times was six years into uh, Petra. Um, It was a particularly discouraging time. I was bone-weary physically. My daughter was off at college then, and she was asked to write a paper in one of her classes. And this paper was to be about her background and her journey of faith, what, what had shaped her worldview, why was she the person that she was. And she shared about going to Petra and the Christ-centeredness of the teaching there, learning how to really look at every aspect of life through the grid of Scripture. And when she got the paper back, she mailed it to me. 
And it wasn't because she got an A or because of the positive comments on it. It was because at the end of the paper, this professor had written, someone is doing something right in Bozeman, Montana. Well, this was from the Lord. I've never met this man. I, to this day, don't even know what his name was. This was the Lord saying, I know. I know it's hard, and I'm right here. We obey him no matter what the cost, and he sustains us. He gives us all we need for whatever the task is. He's faithful. He doesn't always call the equipped, but he does equip the called. So then about four years ago, well, actually it's more like seven years ago now, I entered into a season of pain of a different sort, the one that I wondered how would I even describe this to you. And as I was wondering that, I picked up a little book by Charles Stanley called Brokenness. And on the first page, he defined exactly where I was at that point. To be shattered, to feel as if your entire world has fallen apart or perhaps been blown apart. We don't want to raise our heads off the pillow and we feel certain tears will never stop flowing. Emptiness, a void that cannot be filled, a sorrow that cannot be comforted, a wound for which there is no bomb. Those words described exactly the pain I felt. My world and that of my family was blown apart. I was really numb. I was in shock. I, don't, I know that I couldn't have even gotten out of bed in those days and gotten dressed without his grace. I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't read scripture. I couldn't pray. But I did remember his promise that Jesus will intercede on our behalf when we can't pray. And I hung on to that promise like a lifeline. I wanted to move away. I wanted to be among strangers to crawl in a cave with my family and disappear. But God poured out his grace to me, and I began to really see, what does this look like in a life? It was real to me in a way that it had never been before. I could not only go to work, but I could smile and encourage others, even though my own heart was broken, because of his grace, because he was doing it. The lesson that he was going to teach me through this pain was what it really means to trust. When you've been blindsided, when nothing makes sense, when in a moment much that was your life is gone, never to be the same, when you feel like you're still spinning in the middle of the street and the truck that hit you is long gone. But I knew his character. I knew he loved me. And I know that his purposes and his ways are perfect. And if I say he's sovereign, that means sovereign, even over the heartache. We either trust or we turn away in bitterness, and I knew from past experience that that was not the answer. So you hang on. You feel like you're in neutral. Some days it feels like your fingers are slipping off the branch. But he's faithful. And when you least expect it, again, and when you need it most, he comes down, and it's as though he just gathers you in his arms and reminds you that he knows, that he cares, that you matter to him, and he assures you of his presence. One of those times, uh, during this time, my son had bought a car up in Kalispell, and I drove him up there to get the car, and he happened to have Bebo Norman's latest CD. Well, I really hadn't heard of Bebo Norman at that point, so again, this was definitely from the Lord. I probably would have never purchased the CD on my own. But the lyrics of one of the songs went like this, I can't get my feet off the ground. I want to run, but I don't know how. I want to scream, but there's no sound. I want to run to you somehow. I feel like I'm treading water. I'm hardly real. I'm just trying harder to make my way on the earth by standing still. And he's begging the Lord in this song, will you reach down here and pull me out? And I remember tears just streaming as I felt love that he had for me. I know how much it hurts. I'm right here. There's a purpose for this, and I haven't forgotten you. Without the pain, without the trials, we can't experience that kind of intimate blessing. He doesn't make mistakes. 
Isaiah 41, 9 through 13 have become very precious verses to me over the years, and these are promises for all of you as well. You are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all, for I am the Lord your God, who takes your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. Adversity is not something to be avoided at all costs. It's something to be faced with faith. If we truly want to be all that God has designed us to be, we must submit to him during those times of brokenness, remembering he is completely sovereign, he's completely good, he loves us perfectly, and this is his choice for us right now. He does not make mistakes. We can trust his character. He will use our pain to grow us into the likeness of, of his son and also to bless others. He's going to bring those people across your path that you can comfort with the comfort that he has given you. He wastes nothing in our lives, especially the pain. In our culture, everyone's a victim. And we can feel like a victim, perhaps initially if someone sinned against us or made poor choices that affect us. Maybe we are, but we must not remain there. If we maintain our victim status and wallow in our misery just to have people feel sorry for us, we will never heal and we will never receive the blessings that can come out of adversity. There's part of one of the Puritan prayers that states this truth so beautifully. It says, Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. It's okay to hurt. It's okay to take time to heal. For some, it takes longer than others. It depends on what the adversity is. Don't fake it just because you think it's what a Christian ought to do, that you need to put on a happy face. But share with trusted friends. Pray and get counsel and wait on him. Because often you won't be able to control the adversity, but you certainly can control how you respond to it. Yes, we live in a fallen world, and suffering is part of it. But our final chapter is in heaven. We are not victims. By his grace, we are children of the king. Beloved children of the king, who can say with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are God, that you are worthy of our praise, that you are sovereign, that you are faithful, that you are loving. Father, I pray for these students, for the lives that you have planned for them. I thank you for their desire to serve you. I pray that you would protect them from the evil one, that you would guide their path, direct their steps, and teach them in your ways, that they may bear much fruit for you in your kingdom. We just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.